Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement Author in the Room conference call. My name is Miranda and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and Practicing Internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you, Miranda, and welcome, everybody. Welcome to Author in a Room, uh, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As Miranda said, my name is Dr. Charles Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for the call today, and I appreciate Miranda's introduction. Uh, we are delighted that you could join us today. Just as a reminder, the next Author in the Room call, which, as you know, is a monthly series of calls, uh, will take place on August 16th at this same time. The article for next month's call is Varenicline, an alpha, uh, an alpha 4 beta 2 nicotine acetylcholine receptor partial agonist versus sustained release bupropion and placebo for smoking cessation. And that is in the July 5th, 2006 uh, JAMA with the lead author, Dr. David Gonzalez from uh, Oregon Health Sciences University. So that is on uh, August 16th. We hope you can join us for that call. Uh, we're excited today uh, about today's Author in the Room call. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. And today is a perfect example, a great article for us to talk about. Uh, the feature author is Dr. Victor Vogel. We're delighted to have Victor on the phone today. He's the first author, author of the article, The Effects of Tamoxifen, versus raloxifene on risk of developing invasive breast cancer and other disease outcomes, as you know, from the June 5th, 2006 uh, JAMA. Uh, welcome, uh, uh, Victor. Hi, Dr. Kyler. Good to be here. Victor, uh, Dr. Victor Vogel, is a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, he's been there since 1996. Dr. Vogel completed his undergraduate treatment at the Johns Hopkins University uh, in medical school at Temple. He then went back to Johns Hopkins where uh, he had an extended stay doing both his residency in internal medicine and then his medical oncology fellowship. Uh, he also did his uh, epidemiology training at the uh, Johns Hopkins Univers uh, University School of Hygiene and Public Health. Uh, Dr. Vogel has received a number of awards, including a research fellowship from the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation and the Achievement Award from the U.S. Public Health Service. Dr. Vogel's research interests are in breast cancer risk assessment and prevention, and uh, we are just delighted to have him on the phone today. He's the perfect person to be discussing this topic with us. Uh, as the author, it's my job to help focus the dis uh, as the moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Vogel's research with an eye towards clinical improvement. The purpose of the author in the room calls is for you to hear directly from an author or authors about research findings that can improve patient care. Together, Dr. Vogel and I will help you to translate what's in the paper uh, into changes applicable into your practices. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Vogel will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings. I'll take about five minutes to help draw out some of the implications for real-world practice settings and set the stage to take your questions and comments. 
we'd obviously like to stress how important your participation is in these calls. Uh, it's a great forum for which, uh, in which you can get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from Dr. Vogel and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take to use this information towards the improvement of care. We have about uh, 40 people, uh, 40 lines calling in with several people on each line, uh, including international callers. Some members of the media may be present uh, on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, uh, this call is being recorded and will be available on the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming video or streaming audio file and is downloadable. You can get details and instructions uh, at the IHI website, uh, IHI.org, under the program section. Well, welcome to all, and again, let's get started. Again, let me introduce Dr. Victor Vogel, who will provide an overview of his article. Welcome again, Victor. Thank you. Um, let me summarize by beginning with the, um, uh, the purpose of the STAR trial. The STAR trial built upon uh, results that uh, the National Surgical Adjuvant Breast and Bowel Project, which I'll refer to as the NSABP, one of the National Cancer Institute's uh, cooperative groups, built on the work that the NSABP had done with an earlier trial called uh, the Breast Cancer Prevention Trial, or uh, BCPT, or P1. In that trial, tamoxifen, the breast cancer treatment drug that had been around for 30 years, was compared to a placebo in 13,000 women who were at increased risk for breast cancer. And what that trial showed was that tamoxifen could reduce the risk of breast cancer by about 50%. At about the time the uh, breast cancer prevention trial published its results, there were data beginning to appear from a study of uh, raloxifene, another selective estrogen receptor modulator like tamoxifen, uh, in women who were postmenopausal and at risk for osteoporosis. In the osteoporosis studies, it appeared that uh, raloxifene, when compared to placebo, was causing a marked reduction in the incidence of breast cancer. So based on those observations with both tamoxifen and raloxifene, the STAR trial was launched. Um, the STAR trial was designed to answer the question of whether raloxifene was superior to tamoxifen in its ability to prevent breast cancer as its primary objective and also had secondary objectives related to um, fractures and heart disease and toxicities, including um, uterine toxicities, uh, both uh, malignant and otherwise, uh, thromboembolic events, and so forth. Um, the Eligibility criteria for the trial were restricted to postmenopausal women largely because there was no experience with raloxifene in premenopausal women. There was extensive experience with tamoxifen in premenopausal women, but not with raloxifene, so the trial was restricted to women 35 and older who were postmenopausal. Now, they may have been postmenopausal because they underwent surgery, and that was acceptable. Um, if they had had oophorectomy um, and were menopausal surgically, they could enter the trial um, if they were at least 35, or women who had entered natural menopause could enter the trial. Now, not all women were eligible. In order to be eligible, a woman had to have the risk of the average 60-year-old woman in the population, a 60-year-old Caucasian woman in North America. And that risk is 1.6% in five years. That's the number that the Food and Drug Administration used to approve tamoxifen for use in high-risk women. 
So if a postmenopausal woman was at least 35 years of age and had a risk of at least 1.6% in five years, she was eligible to enter the trial. Um, if a woman was postmenopausal and 35 or older and had a biopsy previously that showed lobular carcinoma in situ, that alone would make her eligible for the trial uh, because that um, lesion is associated with about a 1% to 2% annual risk of invasive breast cancer. So over a period of about um, five and a half years between July of 1999 and uh, uh, the end of 2005, um, there were 19,747 women who entered the trial. Now, more than 100,000, nearly 200,000, 180,000 women were screened for eligibility. About half of those who were screened were eligible, and of those, uh, about 19,000 came forward. They were randomly assigned to receive either tamoxifen or raloxifene in a blinded fashion, um, and they received annual mammography as well as uh, clinical breast examinations um, twice a year, and they also um, had annual um, gynecologic exams and um, serum chemistries. The trial was monitored on a regular basis by an independent data and safety monitoring committee um, that looked at the data uh, every six months. And at the December 2005 uh, examination of the data, the trial had reached its predetermined endpoint. And that endpoint was when a total of 327 invasive breast cancers had occurred. Um, at that point, the uh, trial was unblinded. Um, and shortly uh, after uh, December of 2005, the participants were told uh, which treatment they were assigned to um, and offered a, a crossover. Um, what was found was that in terms of the incidence of invasive breast cancer, um, it was virtually the same when comparing women taking tamoxifen to raloxifene. There were 163 cases of invasive breast cancer in the tamoxifen group and 168 in the raloxifen group. No statistical significant difference between um, those two numbers. What was slightly increased in the um, uh, raloxifene group was the number of non-invasive breast cancers. There were 57 cases of either DCIS, that is ductal carcinoma in situ, or lobular carcinoma in situ, or a combination of the two. 57 cases in the tamoxifen group compared with 80 cases um, in the raloxifen group. Um, and that difference was not statistically significant, uh, but it represented 40% more uh, non-invasive uh, breast cancers in the raloxifen group. Um, importantly, however, um, there were significantly fewer uterine events in the raloxifen group. There were 38% invasive uterine uh, events in the raloxifen group, 23, compared to 36 in the tamoxifen group. And this had been suggested from the osteoporosis studies um, that showed um, significantly fewer um, uterine events uh, with raloxifene uh, than, than with tamoxifen, as had been previously reported. There were no differences for cancers at other sites, for um, uh, heart disease events, or for stroke. But also importantly, um, there was a 30% reduction in the risk of having uh, thromboembolic events, particularly deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary emboli, um, in the raloxifene group. Um, the number of fractures in the two groups were similar, 
Um, and this was uh, not unanticipated because both drugs were known from previous studies to reduce the risk of fracture. And interestingly, there was a reduction in the incidence of cataracts um, among women taking raloxifene, 21% fewer cataracts, and fewer cataract surgeries, 18% fewer cataract surgeries among women taking raloxifene compared to women taking tamoxifen. And these differences were uh, statistically significant. Um, this was a healthy population of women, so there was no difference in the total number of deaths. There were uh, 101 total deaths in the tamoxifen group and 96 in the raloxifene group, uh, but these numbers uh, are not statistically significantly different. Um, overall, uh, it appeared that uh, because of the um, lower risk of thromboembolic event, the lower risk of uh, uh, invasive uterine uh, cancers, uh, the lower event rate for both cataracts and cataract surgery, um, it appeared that uh, raloxifene was a safer drug uh, and had the same effect on the incidence of uh, um, invasive uh, disease. Um, as a result of this, the uh, NSABP has decided to um, move this drug forward into uh, future trials, um, and the task now is to um, see if physicians will uh, be willing to use raloxifene for breast cancer risk reduction, um, unlike their response to uh, the breast cancer prevention trial eight years ago with tamoxifen. Even though tamoxifen had a 50% reduction in the risk of invasive disease, there has not been uh, in the eight years since the publication of those results um, much indication that uh, physicians are uh, using tamoxifen uh, to reduce breast cancer risk. Um, the NSABP now believes that uh, postmenopausal women have a, a second option, uh, which both they and their uh, clinicians may feel um, is a safer choice uh, than tamoxifen uh, was perceived in the future. So why don't I stop at that point uh, with the summary and uh, um, see if there's any questions. Uh, thank you, Victor. It was really a, a great summary. I'm really looking forward to getting into the, the question and answer session. Uh, the challenge for providers, for those of us on the phone, is to take these lessons, lessons from the study, and to use them to make, to make improvement in our daily practices and our healthcare systems. And we're going to get to your questions and answers in just a second. Uh, the value of good research is to provide guidance on how to make practice better. And I think that there is no better article than the one we have at hand to, to do so. Uh, at various times in this moderator section, I talk about how to use new data talk about something called the model for improvement. Uh, I'm not going to do that today, but I want to do is try to, to help to try to frame some of the issues that uh, Dr. Uh, Vogel will uh, talk about for the rest of the hour and hopefully engage in a conversation with you about in, in your questions. Um, one of the critical things here, I believe, is that, uh, and there's been a flurry of publications about this topic in just the last month, and Dr. Vogel can speak to that as well. Um, I think we have a real challenge around breast cancer prevention uh, in front of us now based on this new data, and I think that's going to be a rich area for conversation for the rest of the hour. We have good preventive uh, approaches for colon cancer screening. Uh, there's chronic controversy around prostate cancer screening, but it is generally something that's at the top of our minds. And if you take as an example uh, the prevention of uh, cardiovascular disease and lipid management. There are very good guidelines on that. Not that the guidelines are very well followed, but they're there. If we take the example of cardiovascular disease, we have the Framingham data and we have other recommendations by uh, multiple groups 
on uh, the risk classification of individuals, adults, for their cardiovascular disease. All adults should be risk uh, classified into a high, moderate, or low-risk categories, which should guide your preventive efforts uh, for the cardiovascular disease, in particular their lipid management. Uh, uh, that being said, uh, an example of how we do that in my practice, at least, where we have an electronic medical record is, is that we do have everybody, because we have a program built into our electronic medical record, we have every, all adults in our practice risk stratified, and that risk stratification goes on the patient's electronic problem list, so that at any time uh, that we are managing their lipids or talking to them about their cardiovascular risk, we refer to that uh, risk categorization to give guidance on how aggressive or how uh, we want to be or maybe how aggressive we shouldn't be in terms of their uh, lipid management. Um, and uh, that data comes from Framingham and elsewhere, as you know. Well, I think data on breast cancer risk has been present for some time, but I think that we probably are a little bit behind in using that in a systematic way for the prevention of breast cancer. Granted, we uh, all hopefully use mammograms and hopefully we have systems in place to make sure that our female patients get mammograms on a regular basis. Uh, but the next step in breast cancer prevention is going to be in the preventive use uh, using uh, these medications. And uh, we hope to speak to that for the rest of the call. The question that we might ask then is, what are the criteria? Are there, is there guidance on how to risk stratify women? Uh, and what would we do with that risk stratification? Uh, if we're going to use raloxifene uh, for prevention, um, what are the implications of that? Uh, how should we use it? What are the number needed to treat for those high-risk women so that we, as we're counseling them, we can give them some insights into the likelihood that the medication is going to help them personally and whatnot. Again, from my personal uh, perspective, uh, I would like to build a form in our electronic medical record such that now we have all of our uh, adult female patients risk stratified for their breast cancer uh, risk and that we're doing the appropriate thing in particular for those women who are at high risk. And uh, again, I hope that Dr. Vogel uh, can give us some guidance on that and we look forward to taking your uh, your questions. So, Victor, uh, let me stop there and just uh, ask you to think about that point, and let's talk a little bit about breast cancer prevention in general. Yeah, I think the um, one, one of the features that every clinician knows about that comes to mind is family history. Um, now, family history uh, comes in several different varieties. Uh, the the first-degree relatives, mothers, sisters, and daughters, are the most important, and the more first-degree relatives that a woman has affected with breast cancer, the higher is her risk. So one strategy to begin uh, identifying women at increased risk is to look at family history and to find people whose uh, sisters and mothers and daughters are affected. Um, in addition to uh, family history, another very important risk factor that's um, often available in clinical records is the history of breast biopsy, and particularly breast biopsy at an age that's younger, before say 50 or 55, and any biopsy that has associated with it um, cellular atypia. Uh, pathologists now classify um, breast biopsies as either uh, just proliferation without atypia or with atypia. The presence of atypia in a breast biopsy increases the subsequent risk of breast cancer uh, by about five-fold. And if you combine a family history of breast cancer in a first-degree relative plus atypia on a biopsy, the risk of breast cancer goes up about tenfold lifetime. In addition, now that women are having more 
uh, mammography and more biopsies are being done, we're also identifying this condition that I mentioned at the, uh, at the introduction of the paper, the uh, lobular carcinoma in situ. Um, that lesion, which is found in about 1 to 2 percent of all breast biopsies, um, increases risk substantially. And as I mentioned, about 1 to 2 percent of those women who have lobular carcinoma in situ will develop an invasive breast cancer each year. And there are available for those who have the inclination to, uh, to pursue it, the, the National Cancer Institute has available on its website a calculator that uses uh, the model of Mitchell-Gale, which is the model we use to estimate risk in the STAR trial, um, to calculate a woman's five-year risk of developing breast cancer and her lifetime risk. And that risk can be calculated simply by using her age, her race, um, the age at which uh, menarche occurred, uh, the age at first live birth, the number of first-degree relatives with breast cancer, um, and whether or not she's had a breast biopsy with or without atypia. And those risk factors can be ascertained in a couple of minutes at a clinical encounter um, and then can be uh, entered into um, a, a computer program that uh, rapidly calculates uh, the five-year and lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. And it has been estimated that in the North American population of postmenopausal women, um, and there are some 35 million postmenopausal women, um, that as many as 10 million of those women may be at increased risk of breast cancer. And we need to begin to identify those women because um, there are now these strategies such as uh, um, raloxifene once it's approved um, to reduce uh, their risk of developing subsequent invasive disease. Well, wonderful. Let me just give people the web address for the risk calculator, just so they have it, although you can Google it and find it. It's www.cancer.gov backslash BCR, uh, BC risk tool backslash. So BC risk tool backslash www.cancer.gov backslash BC risk tool. And uh, that'll get you to the risk calculator. Uh, and so uh, if we use the risk calculator, uh, what risk would you use as a cutoff uh, to uh, begin prophylactic treatment? The, the risk the FDA used to uh, say that tamoxifen could be used in this group of women was 1.67%. That is, it's the average risk of the average breast cancer patient that is a 60-year-old Caucasian woman. Uh, so um, if your risk is greater than 1.67% in five years, um, you are considered to be at high risk. Now, everybody's got a, uh, a sort of a sensitivity about these numbers, and um, it's not imperative that one uh, calls a woman at 1.67% high risk. But all of us, when we see numbers that creep up a little higher, 2%, 2.5%, 3%, we start to get to numbers where uh, we feel that probably some intervention should occur. Yeah, great. Well, I'm anxious to go to the callers to see uh, what questions that they have and what comments they may have. Also interested in your uh, any examples that any of the uh, participants may have on how they already use this information uh, in a systematic way for breast cancer prevention. Miranda? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question at this time, please press zero, then the one key. This will place you into a queue, and one by one, your questions will be answered. So again, that's zero, one on your phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press zero, then the two key. And our first question comes from Anita Misro from 
generic. Please go ahead, Anita. I'm sorry, Dr. Anita. Yeah, sorry. Hi, I'm, uh, yeah, hi, I'm Dr. Mishra. I uh, had the question, what kind of blood chemistry should be um, done while uh, patient in treatment with raloxifen? Uh, is the first one. And the second one, should we also give uh, calcium and vitamin D when the patient is receiving tamoxifen and, or uh, raloxifen? Two good questions. Um, and we largely answered the first question uh, with the breast cancer prevention trial. We did serum chemistries every uh, six months on all the participants in the trial. And what we learned was that um, tamoxifen had virtually no effect on serum chemistries. Um, and so uh, we also found that to be true with raloxifene. So there is no recommendation to do routine serum chemistries on patients receiving either tamoxifen or raloxifene. Uh, because they, they just don't cause abnormalities in those studies. Um, in terms of calcium and vitamin D, uh, those, those are important. And the NIH recommendation for all postmenopausal, well, pre- and postmenopausal women, uh, but especially for the postmenopausal women who are the target of our discussion today, is that they take at least 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day. Um, and this is something that uh, we try to get all of our patients to do. Um, and they should have um, the vitamin D that either comes with the calcium uh, supplements, there are um, formulations, as you know, that contain both calcium and vitamin D, or the vitamin D that comes in a multivitamin supplement. So we counsel all of our high-risk patients about the importance of bone health. Um, we get DEXA scans uh, on our postmenopausal patients, um, but calcium and vitamin D are certainly an important part of their management. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, if you do have a question, it is zero, then the one key. And our next question comes from Margie Harbrick from Colorado Clinical Guidelines. Margie, please go ahead. Uh, thank you. I have two questions. One is um, for relaxing for high-risk women that are premenopausal or perimenopausal. Are there any recommendations that you can give um, around that? Um, the... Eli Lilly had uh, no information about uh, premenopausal women and had no interest in supporting a trial um, that would study premenopausal women. So there, other than a very small study of about 22 subjects at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center, there's essentially no data um, on premenopausal women with raloxifene. So the label, when it's uh, finally uh, obtained, um, will approve uh, raloxifene only for the management of increased risk of breast cancer in postmenopausal women. Um, so that the current recommendation for premenopausal women is that they uh, um, they consider tamoxifen if they want to reduce their uh, risk of breast cancer with a uh, serum. Victor, is there any theoretical risk in premenopausal women? There is no theoretical risk. And um, so it, theoretically it could be used. It's just that uh, we're always reluctant to use a drug in which there are no published data. Sure, sure. Okay. Gotcha. And my second question is um, for a woman that has already had breast cancer, have there been any studies looking at um, raloxifene versus tamoxifen for those? There have been those studies. And this this is a question that we get now frequently from our breast cancer patients. They right. <laughs> come to the clinic for their follow-up visit, and they say, well, I've heard about the STAR trial, I've read about it in the newspaper, and is Avista a drug for me? And the answer to those women is no, because there are no data 
um, with uh, Avista or raloxifene in patients who have had a history of breast cancer. Now, it raises a very interesting theoretical question. What if a woman, say, had breast cancer in her 30s or, or early 40s and now she's in her late 50s or 60s? Um, she would be considered uh, to be at high risk. Um, should she be a woman who takes raloxifene? Well, I suppose we could talk about that for a long time, and theoretically she would be. Uh, the STAR trial did not address that population. Um, if she's postmenopausal, um, I guess I could make that argument, but we really have no data um, for uh, raloxifene following either tamoxifen or any other therapy among women with a diagnosis of invasive breast cancer. And um, again, the, as Chuck asked, is there any theoretical risks that you can think of on that? Well, I don't think there would be any risk. The question is whether there would be any benefit. Um, and there's, there's no demonstrated benefit, but raloxifen, like tamoxifen, is a SERM, a selective estrogen receptor modulator, and it should be very effective, but we have no data. Gotcha. Thank you. Would you hesitate to um, counsel a premenopausal woman on the lack of data about uh, Avista or raloxifen uh, versus obviously taking uh, tamoxifen given the data now and let the woman make the choice? Um, we do tell all the women, and we see um, a number of premenopausal women in our high-risk clinic as well as postmenopausal women, we tell the premenopausal women that there are no data about raloxifene in their group. We also review with them the very favorable safety profile for tamoxifen in premenopausal women. Um, and um, we, we actually don't recommend that the premenopausal women take uh, uh, raloxifene. Now, for the perimenopausal women, uh, for those women in their late 40s, early 50s uh, who are still actively menstruating, we tell them that if they're really interested in uh, raloxifene for their risk reduction, we should simply wait a short period of time until they enter menopause, and then we know we're uh, on familiar ground where there are data, and many of them take that course. Great. Okay. Miranda? Yes, and our next question comes from Anita Misro from Geriatric, BC again. Yeah, my first question is uh, for um, the risk calculator website, and the um, uh, second question will be what uh, is the role of diet, you know, what kind of diet should patients uh, with breast cancer should avoid, and what kind of exercise should they do? Um, I'm not sure what your question is about the risk calculator. No, uh, the website. The web, yeah, that website was www.cancer.gov backslash dot, dot? Uh, uh, www.cancer.gov, G-O-V. G-O-V, uh-huh. Backslash B-C risk tool. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Um, in terms of diet and exercise, uh, surprisingly and rather startlingly, there's not been proof that diet and exercise uh, reduce the risk of breast cancer. In fact, there are at least half a dozen studies that have focused on macro dietary components. So I'm talking about um, fat, total calories, protein, carbohydrates. Um, there are no studies to demonstrate. In fact, there are studies showing negative results in that there is apparently no relationship uh, between relatively recent diets, say over the decade or so prior to a diagnosis of breast cancer uh, and uh, a diagnosis of breast cancer. It does not appear that one can modulate one's risk of breast cancer by changing the macro components of the diet. Um, as far as exercise, it's, it's equally um, confused. Uh, there are epidemiologic data that show that women who were varsity athletes in college have a lower lifetime risk, but very few women are varsity athletes. 
there are no data to show that if one engages in a rigorous exercise program starting in middle life, say after age 40, that that can reduce the risk of breast cancer. There's one place where there are some encouraging data, and those are data uh, among women with breast cancer, and it appears that if you've had a diagnosis of breast cancer and you initiate um, a dietary fat reduction program, uh, there is a reduction in the, in the risk of recurrence of breast cancer in those women. Um, but there's not much to recommend a reduction in uh, incidence of breast cancer with a dietary intervention. The recently published results of the Women's Health Initiative showed a suggestion of a benefit of about a 9% reduction in women on the low-fat diet, but it was not statistically significant. And I think at, at, at best we can say uh, the question is not answered, but there are no definitive recommendations in that regard yet. And what about the role of vitamins um, for patients with breast cancer and on um, tamoxifen? Um, there are no current recommendations for um, supplemental vitamins. Uh, many clinicians tell their patients to take daily multivitamins, and I think that's a perfectly acceptable recommendation. Um, but there are no specific or unique recommendations that need to be given to women taking tamoxifen or raloxifene. These are all valuable issues to keep in mind as we're counseling women on uh, breast cancer prevention. Uh, Victor, when, you're, when, we're, when we're doing so and they want to know, you know, what's the likelihood of this treatment helping me, uh, how do you talk to them about that? So what I tell women is that um, it reduces the risk in half and it, it, we make them understand that it doesn't eliminate the risk. That is, women who take either tamoxifen or raloxifene can certainly still um, be diagnosed with breast can cancer subsequently. Um, what we do know from the um, hundreds of cases that have occurred in the studies um, where women have taken uh, CIRMS for risk reduction is that the cancers that occur are no more aggressive. We're not selecting for uh, poor prognosis cancers uh, by giving women either tamoxifen or raloxifene. Um, and we um, what was the rest of that question, uh, Chuck? <laughs> About uh, how do you counsel women? Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. And, and so we tell them that when uh, when they take um, when they take a, a drug to reduce their risk, essentially what most of these women are doing are getting back to uh, a baseline status. That is, it's as if they had no risk factors. Um, it's as if. Uh, they never had a biopsy with uh, proliferation or uh, atypia. It's as if they never had a family history. So it, it resets them to a, a much lower level of risk while not totally eliminating the risk. And, and um, since you are an epidemiologist and we have you available to us, we ought to think a little bit about the number needed to treat and uh, have you help us translate that number a little bit. Give us some insights into how you would use that number, if you do at all, in talking to uh, women about breast cancer prevention. Yeah, I mean, that's a public health question of, of importance. Uh, we don't often get into that number um, with the patients themselves, but if you restrict the use of um, these agents to the truly high-risk population, which I think is appropriate, that is, to women like those that were in the breast cancer prevention trial or the STAR trial, where the increase in risk is up to a level of say three or four percent in five years, then the number needed to treat is only around uh, 40 to 50 um, to benefit one uh, patient. And I think that number is comparable to the numbers needed to treat for conditions like high cholesterol, hypertension, hyperglycemia, and so forth. Right, great. Okay, Miranda? 
Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, if you'll just press zero one for questions, and our next question comes from Kevin Hughes from General Hospital. Kevin, please go ahead. Well, this is actually his colleague Connie Roach at Mass General Hospital, and my question is about the um, fact that raloxifene doesn't appear to be as effective in preventing non-invasive breast cancer. And I know it's not statistically significant, but I wonder how you interpret that in terms of um, counseling high-risk women. Well, I th hi, Connie. How are you? Um, I think it's um, being over-interpreted by some people looking at the trial from the outside. Um, and I think the important thing to remember is that um, it wasn't that raloxifene had no effect. It was that it had a lesser effect um, than what was seen uh, with tamoxifen. And we're talking about a difference uh, between um, 80 cases and 57 cases. So 23 cases um, in some uh, 39,000 women years. So the incidence that we're talking about um, is a difference between one and a half cases per thousand women years with the uh, tamoxifen and 2.1 cases per thousand, or a half a case per thousand women years um, comparing raloxifene to tamoxifen. Now, others will have to answer as to whether or not that's significant, um, but that's a half a case per thousand, or one case in 2,000 women years uh, of a non-life-threatening event. Um, and so we didn't ascribe a huge amount of significance um, to that difference, but others have considered it uh, to be more important. Uh, we tell women about that, um, but most women's concern relates to the invasive and not the non-invasive cancers. Thank you. Great. Miranda? Our next, our next question comes from Margie Haberet from Colorado Clinical Guidelines. Margie, please go ahead. Yes, yeah, sorry. I um, wanted to ask, do you know anything about apocrine metaplasia or metaplastic atypia? Um, there have been a few biopsies coming back with that, and um, I don't know that that has the same significance as the um, hyperplasia or the regular atypia. Uh, I do know a little bit about that. Um, so apocrine metaplasia in a number of reports has been shown to be associated with an increase in risk of about one-and-a-half to two-fold, um, and metaplastic hyperplasia would be similar. Um, there, without the presence of atypia, though, they're of a lesser significance on the order of about one-and-a-half to two-and-a-half-fold increase in risk as opposed to, frankly, atypical lesions where the increase in risk is about five-fold or if you have a Gale model um, calculation and then you uh, add to that Gale model score atypical hyperplasia, you double that Gale model score. Um, so those lesions are important, but um, as we presently calculate risk, we would only incorporate those in a history of having a breast biopsy, and they don't get any special significance. Okay, so you would not put that in as a, as a, in the Gale model as a positive if it was metaplastic atypia? If it was metaplastic atypia, yes, I would call that atypical hyperplasia. Although, fortunately, that's not a term we see too often on biopsies. Right, but the apocrine metaplasia with atypia, that's and, different? And that, again, with, if it has the word atypia, then yes, I would call that atypical hyperplasia. And then you would put that in, okay. Yes, yes. And our next question comes from Kathy Coleman from Lumitra. Lume, Please go ahead, Kathy. 
in, in California. Hi, Victor. Hi, Kathy. Long time no talk. Listen, I was just um, curious about what Chuck said before in terms of the risk stratification for other diseases like cardiovascular for high, moderate, and low risk. And what are your thoughts about shining more light on the implementation of cancer preventive and early detection services and education throughout the country? I, I was thinking we have cancer registries, but we really don't have risk registries and whether you think the next steps, you know, from a national perspective would be a public health approach or uh, creating, you know, a risk, uh, the calculator and how to implement that. Should it be through mammography centers, through hospitals, through cancer registries to really promote more education about the options for prevention? Kathy, you know, Kathy this is Chuck. It, it is a great question. I, I'm delighted that you asked it. You know, for as long as the cardiovascular risk uh, recommendations have been out there, it is quite literally pitiful how well they are used. Mm -hmm. uh, most use them sort of in a hip pocket manner, hoping that when the patient's in front of them, they can figure out which risk category they're in and then treat them appropriately. But as we know from a systems perspective, that leads to pretty poor performance. Yeah. So, you know, and that data has been out for a good, uh, I don't know, 10 to 15 years. So we're hoping it won't take that long with breast cancer prevention. So I think it's a great question that uh, Victor can address. Yeah, well, what, what I would like to see, Kathy, is that um, we, since now we have several tools to uh, address breast cancer risk, that is to, to reduce the risk and do it in a way that I think is safe for the majority of women, um, that we start to think about incorporating Gale model risk assessments in mammography reports and especially in, in uh, breast biopsy reports. I think when a breast biopsy is done and the result is benign, that we should provide uh, with that report uh, an estimate of the woman's five-year and lifetime risk. And I think that could be done relatively easily. The algorithms uh, to uh, do the calculations with Gale's model exist. They're not hard to add to existing computer programs, and I think that would be um, a good place to start. And then I think we also need um, just a great deal of uh, um, clinician education about the importance of doing these calculations, about how simple they are to do. Um, um, they're not costly, um, uh, and the models have been validated. The Gale model has been validated in three large prospective studies, so we know it gives accurate right, uh, uh, estimates for populations of women, and I think that's the direction that we need to start moving. Hmm. So does that presuppose that on the pathology report, I mean, that's interesting to tie it to the pathology report, that covers the maybe the current atypia, but what about the history of the patient, you know, with the prior biopsies and, and the rate, age, well, the age would be there, um, but the relatives, do, do you see this as a team effort between hospitals and mammography centers? Or, you know, what, what could we think about doing? Because we've had so much focus on treatment for so many years, and we know from the payer perspective and the quality of life perspective, obviously, prevention and early detection is certainly cheaper. Yes, I, and I think it is a team, a team effort, and I think we need to uh, get a partnership going between the mammography centers, the clinicians, uh, the surgical pathologists, um, so that all this information uh, uh, is put together, and you're absolutely right. A, a recent biopsy won't ca capture information about previous biopsy, and it won't get information about family history that needs to be done in the clinical encounter. But I think if uh, we start building pieces of uh, the, the history together, 
um, and uh, get the opportunity to calculate risk uh, in a number of places where women enter the system, it would be a very reasonable thing to do. Another place that that could be easily done is when women come for a DEXA scan to assess their risk of osteoporosis. Um, it is easy to capture breast cancer risk factors at that time and to give those women not only a T-score for their osteoporosis, but also uh, a Gale score for their breast cancer risk. Thanks. And our next question comes from Deborah Betzor from New York State Department of Health. Deborah, please go ahead. Okay. Where's the... Uh... Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, hello. Oh, good. Uh, I, uh, this is actually Ed Dombrowski. I, I have a question. On your study, I see that uh, in terms of some contributing risk factors, such as hormone replacement therapy, oral contraceptives, androgens, uh, that the participant could not have any of those for the previous three months. Why did they pick the three-month cutoff and the other issue is, did you also look at other risk factors such as uh, tobacco use? I don't see that listed there either, which potentially could be considered a risk factor as well. Two good questions. And um, we let me do the tobacco first. Uh, we, we have smoking information from all of the participants. I think it's about 20% uh, or so were current or former smokers. Um, we didn't exclude uh, anyone based on smoking history. In the breast cancer prevention trial where we compared tamoxifen to placebo, um, we found no effect of smoking on the risk of breast cancer nor a modulation of other outcome events. Um, and so we didn't uh, um, stratify outcomes in this trial uh, by smoking status. Now, in terms of the um, uh, hormone use, um, we, we didn't want to have uh, concurrent use of a serum and hormone replacement therapy, either estrogens or androgens, and admittedly, the 90-day cutoff was somewhat arbitrary. Um, it, it could have been 90 days, it could have been six months. We settled on 90 days. Um, we, we thought that uh, it, it might take 90 days to see whether a woman uh, coming off hormone replacement therapy um, resolved her symptoms. The biggest concern was whether women who had been users of hormone replacement therapy would have hot flashes, sleep disturbances, uh, other menopausal symptoms that uh, might get significantly worse when they entered the trial and started taking either tamoxifen or raloxifene. Um, so that's why the 90-day washout was there. Now, we could certainly um, um, argue that uh, 90 days is not a sufficient amount of time to uh, remove or reverse any potential priming effect um, of the hormone replacement therapy. But once again, we didn't see any differential outcome among patients who reported prior hormone therapy use versus those who never used hormone replacement therapy. Thank you. And I shall no further questions in queue at this time, so I'd like to turn the time back over to Dr. Kylo. Please go ahead. Wonderful. Uh, well, uh, I think there's lo lots to discuss still. I, with any of the callers who are out there right now, I would be very interested in any systems that you have set up as an example of how to do highly reliable breast cancer screening so that you can use this information to uh, get the right care to those uh, high-risk women. Uh, Kathy Coleman from Lumetra in California, I think, asked a great question about that issue. What, is, what should the system look like? 
I suspect that if it's not done in primary care and it's not done reliably in primary care, then it'll be done unreliably in general, uh, just because it should be the conduit through which most women receive the majority of their ongoing care, although uh, primary care for a woman certainly could be her uh, OBGYN. Um, so, uh, Victor, I'm going to start using the uh, the risk calculator, and I'm going to use it on, uh, um, well, I, I want to use it on as many women as I should use it on. Uh, give me some guidance on specifically what I should do. So who should I calculate the risk on, uh, and then at what risk should I start counseling them on prevention, uh, and, um, and uh, if they choose to go forward with prevention, what should I do for them? Okay. Good questions. So the people that I would definitely do a risk calculator uh, on is virtually any woman over 60 um, because at least half of the women greater than 60 years of age will have risk greater than 1.67%. Um, so that would be one place to start. I would do a risk calculation on any woman who reported either a breast biopsy or a first-degree relative with breast cancer, mother, sister, or daughter. Um, lots of women will report aunts and grandmothers, and I don't know that that alone would lead me to do a risk calculation, but certainly a first-degree relative or a biopsy would lead me to do it. So, you know, I just, I just ran the risk calculator on a theoretical 56-year-old uh, woman who had had nothing but a breast biopsy, and she was, I think, at 1.6. She was right at the cutoff, or maybe she was even 1.7, so that would almost right. put you over the limit right there. It would put you over there, and if you had any other additional risk factors, it would put you well Not into the yeah, okay. so-called high-risk range. Okay, so? Um, so, uh, and any woman who came to you with a biopsy that said, uh, you know, atypia or lobular carcinoma in situ, uh, I, I certainly, well, I should make the point that if you have lobular carcinoma in situ, you don't need to do a Gale model calculation sure. because we already know they're at high risk. Um, and the question of um, then what the options are, and it, it, it becomes, uh, you have to put it into clinical context. So the, the people who are clinically probably the poorest candidates or or at the poorest time are those perimenopausal women. So if, if women are in their late 40s, early 50s, uh, they're starting to skip periods, they may be having some menopausal symptoms, those women are not good candidates to initiate uh, risk reduction therapy with a serum on because they are likely going to have a lot of symptoms with the serum. Um, and the best thing to do for those women is to get them through uh, the period of uh, symptoms and manage those symptoms in whatever way uh, seems clinically appropriate and then bring them back when their uh, symptoms are under control and uh, talk to them about risk reduction at that point. And that can usually be accomplished in 6 to 12 to 18 months, and um, that, that's an okay period of time to wait. Now, if a woman is um, well younger than menopause, in her mid-40s, from her mid-30s to her mid-40s, and if she's completed childbearing, and childbearing is not an, an issue, because we should also emphasize that um, it, uh, women who are considering pregnancy or might be pregnant should not take uh, either raloxifen or tamoxifen. Um, both drugs are known to be teratogenic and simply must be avoided in women who could be pregnant. Um, but if a woman has an increased risk and she's in her um, mid-30s to mid-40s, she's an ideal candidate for risk reduction because her risk of uh, side effects associated um, with tamoxifen are very, very low, um, and she will get a a large benefit-to-risk ratio. Um, so those women in their 30s to 40s are good candidates for tamoxifen. 
for the women who are um, past menopause in their early 50s to their mid 60s, um, then it becomes a matter of risks and benefits and um, whether or not a woman wants to take on the uh, small but real risk of uh, um, thromboembolic events or other side effects that may occur with raloxifene is largely dependent on the level of her risk. So that a woman with uh, lobular carcinoma in situ who's in her late 50s or early 60s may certainly say, yes, that's something I'd want to do. Whereas a woman who's in her mid to late 60s and has only a marginally increased risk might decide that the risks and benefits don't justify um, considering risk reduction. Um, and that sort of uh, approach can be done relatively quickly in a clinical encounter. It takes no more than five or 10 minutes to sort out those um, issues, and it doesn't have to be done at a single visit. Um, the, this information can be given to uh, subjects who are eligible. Uh, we give them their risk information. We tell them about the uh, risk reduction strategies. We uh, ask that they uh, ponder those things, think about them, come back with questions, and then we often uh, approach this over a series of visits, um, and we, we get to consensus on what the best strategy is. Mm. And once you treat, if they're amenable, you're, you're pretty much treating for a long time. Well, the five, five years is the recommendation. So yep. there, there are no, no studies for risk reduction with either tamoxifen or raloxifen that continue therapy beyond five years. So the current recommendation for either drug is just five years. Would you do that or would you continue? Well, <laughs> I think at this point we would just give five years. Uh, um, there are, I'm, I'm told, some data coming out uh, in, in later this year um, uh, some British studies that are looking at, in the adjuvant setting, five versus ten years of tamoxifen, perhaps that will give us a better clue as to uh, duration questions. But right now the recommendation is five years. Good. So you're effective of when you start, you're going to treat for five years based on the current data and then yes. stop. And then, yes. And uh, theoretically the advantage continues beyond that point. Yes, from the adjuvant treatment trials where tamoxifen has been given for five years and then the uh, incidence of contralateral second breast tumors has been looked at, there's a benefit that goes well beyond the five years of tamoxifen treatment. Good. Uh, Miranda, any other questions? Must not be any other questions in the queue right now. Uh, we have about five minutes left. Uh, if anybody wants to ask a question, go ahead and uh, uh, hit the magic numbers that Miranda told you about. And I'm sorry, we did just have one question okay. come into queue, and it's Kathy Coleman from Lumitra again. Great. Kathy, please go ahead. Hi, thank you. I was just um, thinking uh, during those five years, you know, that they're on the drug, let's not forget, too, that those women will probably feel a lot safer, you know, on the drug and being followed and with the evolution of the new breast imaging technologies, getting good clinical breast exams and MRI if appropriate and appropriate high-quality mammography, um, that five-year window of them being on that drug could, could be a very rich one in terms of picking up breast cancer early if it, if it was going to happen. And um, I also wanted to just suggest, uh, I know it's a dream, but, you know, the IHI has done this 100,000 live campaign uh, for um, the hospital setting. And I was thinking, you know, Victor said there was 10 million women at high risk who are postmenopausal. So maybe we should think about doing a 10 million live campaign. <laughs> Well, interestingly, Kathy, that conversation is on the table at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we are—we're uh, gonna—we're—it's it's an active conversation. We're gonna have more conversation about it in early August and decide where we're gonna go in that regard. Oh, that's incredible! I'm so glad I tuned in today. 
really appreciate your participation as well. Well, that's all the time we have for questions. Um, and uh, we are really delighted, uh, Victor, to have you on the call today. It really was a rich conversation. I wish we had more time for it. And uh, so thank you very much for your participation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem. Once again, this is Author in the Room, a monthly series of calls that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Uh, our next discussion will take place uh, once again on uh, August 16th uh, from 2 to 3 o'clock p.m. ET. And as you know from my uh, earlier uh, statement, that is on smoking cessation. So we look forward to that article. Stay tuned for that. Um, look for more details on both the JAMA and the IHI websites uh, for information on that. Author in the Room is an interactive conference called Designed to Accelerate Changes to Improve Clinical Practice. I think this is a great example of how we can use newly published data from the American Medical Association uh, uh, JAMA uh, journal uh, with information from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement to drive forward clinical improvement. So once again, thanks to all of you for being a part of Author in the Room, and thank you, Dr. Vogel. Have a good day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for your participation. To end this call, simply hang up your line. Again, thank you.